0: We return this morning to the 47th chapter of Genesis, where we'll pick up where we left off last week at verse 29. It was uh, my intent at the beginning of the week, a couple of weeks ago now, to cover all of the 47th chapter at once, without pausing here, but as that week wore on, I realized that the writer of Genesis definitely takes a sort of uh, pause and breath at this particular episode. It seems to me, therefore, that faithful expositional preaching of the text requires the same of us. So here we are, and with God's help, we will be blessed for stopping at this tender scene that takes place between a father and a son in the anticipation of death's arrival to the former. Toward that end, let us seek God, whose word this is, for that help. Our Father in heaven, we acknowledge our absolute dependence upon you for your grace and for your spirit, the same who inspired these words now to come and and illumine them to us. We ask to hear thy voice in the reading and preaching of thy word, that we may live according to your truth and have our lives conformed in this too. To your own revealed will, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 47, we pick up at verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh. A form of oath-taking that we've seen previously in Genesis as well. Put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself. On the head of his bed. The late Dr. James Boyce told the story to his congregation about a Presbyterian student who years ago went off to college, joined a fraternity, and made himself obnoxious to his fraternity brothers by talking about Presbyterianism. According to the student, Presbyterians were best. They had the best churches, the best form of church government, the best worship services, and above all, the soundest and most unshakable faith. Everything about Presbyterianism was in first place. Well, his fraternity brothers were mostly Baptists, and they were not about to accept this. So they devised a plan. One evening they slipped some sleeping powders into his coffee, and when he had passed out, they loaded him into a car and took him out of the city to a remote graveyard. They placed an open coffin there, resting on a large, flat tombstone, and they put him in it. Then they hid behind some nearby tombstones to see what he would do when he woke up. For a long time, nothing happened. Night passed, dawn came, then, as the red rays of the rising sun began to pierce through the graveyard, casting gray shadows and causing the mist to rise slowly from the ground, they heard a sound from the casket. Their fraternity brother was waking up. It won't be long now, they thought. As soon as he wakes up and begins to look around the graveyard, he'll scream and jump out of that casket and run through the woods. We'll laugh about it forever. As they waited, an arm rose slowly out of the casket and stretched itself. Then there was the other arm. Finally, the young man sat up and looked around. His friends thought, this is it. He's going to scream now. Instead, he suddenly suddenly shouted triumphantly, Hallelujah! It's the resurrection morning, and the Presbyterians are the first ones up! (laughs) You see, how, how you treat death, how you approach the matter of death has everything to do with your convictions about it. What I fear, dear flock, is that we have far too much come under the influence of our culture when it comes to death, particularly to the anticipation of and the preparation for it, for our own death and its inevitable arrival. A stroll down a couple of aisles at Walmart will be enough to convince you that we are a culture of deep ironies when it comes to to death. On the one hand, we have completely immersed ourselves and gorged ourselves with death. Bloody snuff films fill our shelves and the eyes and the hearts of our culture all day long. Even little children now regularly view killings and deaths, both fictional and real. And the two tend to blend on the television screen. On the other hand, we have aisles in our stores filled with makeup and hair coloring and skin treatments and miscellaneous artificial body parts and coloring, all designed to defy the effects of aging. Sometimes it's even called age-defying makeup. It seems that we are, when we are not filling our eyes with death as entertainment, we are running full force from it trying with might and main to deny or at least to defy it. If not with makeup, with words, we try to bury death. No pun intended. Insurance companies sell what? Life insurance. A misnomer if ever there were one. One of you several years ago passed along to me an article from Wall Street Journal in which medical textbooks were studied to find out how doctors are trained to care for the dying, their dying patients. Frankness about death was strikingly absent, according to the study. Sometimes dead persons were termed non-survivors. Richard Doss, in his book on death in America, writes about a massive cultural conspiracy. He writes at work in creating a new image for death. He goes on, we attempt to reshape our understanding of death by the language we use, particularly imaginative euphemisms we have invented to soften the reality of death. Consider what takes place when a person dies. If he dies in a hospital and The odds are he will. It will be announced that the patient expired, and the attending physician will sign a vital statistics form. No longer a patient, the person enters a new state as a loved one. The remains of the loved one are removed to the mortuary where the family arranges the memorial estate. After preparation, the loved one is placed in a slumber room, sometimes called the reposing room. If he's a member of a church, the minister announces from the pulpit or in the bulletin that Mr. Jones has gone home to be with the Lord or passed to his heavenly home. The newspaper states succinctly that Mr. Jones' beloved father passed away. This is the accepted social practice for speaking of death. If you are so coarse as to mention in a matter-of-fact way, did you hear that John Jones died last week? Many people would think it in poor taste and think you indiscreet. Use of softened language indicates a strong need to deny the harshness of death. Now, whether you take it as far as Mr. Doss does or not, you do know that as a culture, drifting further and further away from even the vestiges of a biblical world and life view, we are also losing our common ability to deal squarely with death. This is where you and I must take our instruction from the Bible and from the examples it gives us about how to deal with death, particularly with the coming of your own. And I think that in identifying our culture's inability to deal squarely with death, we come to the first point of biblical direction for ourselves. First, Christian, learn to face your own death and learn to speak of it as well. It is, after all, coming quickly to all of us. Unless, of course, the Lord returned first, we must all die. It says the Scripture is that appointed, it is appointed for a man once to die, and after that comes judgment. George Lawson wrote on this passage, quote, today we are 24 hours nearer to our death, to our latter end, than yesterday, and 365 days nearer to it than we were a year ago. At all times, they are inexcusable, who are warned by the decay of their strength that death is is approaching if they banish it from their thoughts when they ought to be hastening their preparations to meet it with firmness. End quote. Here we learn an important lesson for ourselves. Brothers and sisters, an important lesson from Jacob. We must reckon with our coming death. We cannot hide from it. It's foolish to do so. Foolishness to act like the world does, to look away and to act as if it's not coming, as if we can postpone it indefinitely. This is huge, Christians. This is a monumental moment for you. You mark your life, don't you? You mark your life by great moments. You, you mark your life by your birth and your graduation from school, and and your marriage, and your children maybe, and those sort of things. And we look forward to great events, and important too. We even let those things that we anticipate reach back and affect the way we live right now today. How much more our own death Here's the point. If you will live biblically, this too must not only be a part of your vocabulary, but a part of your thinking. I know that I've quoted to you from Faith Cook's work about Samuel Rutherford and his friends for the past couple of weeks now, but if your patience will allow, I came upon a passage again this week that relates directly to the sermon that faithful, fair-haired pastor of Anwath, wrote to an elderly lady in his congregation in a way that most pastors today wouldn't dare to speak to an elderly member under their ministry, urging her to obedience to the Lord in the last stretch of her earthly race. He does not shrink back, Rutherford does, from mentioning death, but comes back to that subject again and again in in vivid terms. He writes, Oh, how sweet and comfortable will the feast of a good conscience be to you when your eye strings shall break, your face wax pale, and the breath turn cold, and your poor soul come sighing to the windows of the house of clay of your dying body, and shall long to be out. You may think Rutherford just a little bit too graphic, but does not the Bible itself speak of death in those very same ways? Rutherford and Faithful pastors like him and faithful Christians are only imitating the Bible when they speak frankly and openly about the coming of death to themselves and to others. It is not a morbid exercise in which we engage when speaking about death and thinking about it. It is a biblically commended exercise in honesty and in preparation Which brings me to the second point. Not only must we learn to speak of death and its coming, we must second make preparation for the coming of our own death. Look at Jacob requiring not only now the promise, but the oath of his son Joseph to carry out his instructions. Bring my body to the burying ground of my father's. Even while he is still alive, As it were, arranging his own funeral, the circumstances of his own burial. Dying well, wrote or writes J.I. Packer, dying well is one of the good works to which Christians are called. And certainly, An important part of dying well will be planning how your death will be marked. Jacob made it a point that his death should be punctuated by the transportation of his body from Egypt to Canaan. Why? Was he an old sentimentalist? Was he maybe just not too wild about the Egyptian cemeteries? What? Just this, even in his death, Jacob would testify to the promises of God. By requiring that he be buried in Canaan, he was as much proclaiming in death as he did in life that God is true to his promises. Canaan. Not Egypt was the land God had promised. And certain of the resurrection to come, he would rise in the land the Lord his God was giving him. And so it would be and was for centuries to come a clear and certain message, not only for the next generation, but for the generation after that, and the next, and the next, and the next, for at least... 400 years, I say, Jacob's funeral was a testimony to his descendants of his faith in the promises of God. One has to wonder how often the people were reminded and reminded one another of that great funeral procession that led all the way from Egypt to To Canaan, that bore the patriarch's body to the place of God's promise. How many people's faith was buoyed in the waves of trial, of the trying days in Egypt that were to come by the memory of Father Jacob's funeral? It's difficult to know but this is what I want for your funerals and for mine. I want and I want for you to take the full opportunity to glorify God in your death, to testify to the certain hope that is found in and only in Jesus Christ. I would that you and I would actually comfort the grieving while we lie lifeless in the casket by the testimony we leave behind so that dead, yet we speak. That is why I want to make this earnest offer to you this morning. I will be glad to sit down with as many of you as would care to do this to plan out your funeral with you before it comes. Already a couple of you have done this with me, and others of you have given me only the most general of directions, which, of course, I will strive to fulfill to the best of my ability. One of you in a conversation with me eight years ago told me simply this, that God must be glorified in your funeral. I wrote that down that day and I found that note to myself this week again with your name on it and the date you told me so. Reminds me of the wishes expressed by many years ago by many Christians that they should be buried with their shoes on. Why? they thought they'd actually need them to keep their feet warm in the ground, maybe? Because they didn't realize that those shoes would turn to dust as well? Of course not. That particular Christian tradition was a tradition of testifying to the certainty of the resurrection and the, the preparation for meeting Christ. Or think of another Christian tradition, burying the body with the feet pointing to the east. With feet to the east so that when Jesus returns, that person should rise to meet Christ face to face. Worthy traditions which bespoke great faith. Now these are some of many decisions that can be made about your funeral long before the days come. The day comes. Practical decisions from the hymns and prayers that will be spoken and the flowers in your casket. All these decisions that will not only relieve your family of many pressures when the day comes, but will supply you with the opportunity to give maximum glory to God, to give your last testimony from the grave I hope that you will give this very careful thought that day is coming more quickly than any of us cares to imagine or dares to think and i firmly believe that you will want to have made ready for it we we plan ahead after all in some cases for months some for years We plan for weddings and for graduation parties and and all those sort of things. Why not take some careful time to prepare, to lay plans for your last good work, for your exit from this life into glory, and to make that a great day. So Christians, not only must you look to, consider, and speak of the coming of your own death and prepare for that day, but third, you must live worshipfully today, before that day comes upon you. And here we have Jacob's example to follow as well. When he had extracted not only a promise, but an oath from his son to bury him according to his wishes off in Canaan, Jacob does not simply let go, And sort of resign into doing nothing. What does he do? Verse 31. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. What is he doing? Bowing himself on the head of his bed. What does that mean? Was it a a gesture to Joseph? Uh, Was it a sort of relief? Maybe the old man was falling asleep. The writer of Hebrews tells us the answer. He was worshiping God. Jacob, it is true, he was a wily character. Of that there is no doubt. His is not a life that Scripture commends to any one of us, at least not for the most part. Even the writer of Hebrews, when commending Jacob for his faith, has nothing to say about his life before this point. But here, here, Jacob, is what you will want to have been, what we will want to have been, every one of us, not only in the last days of our life, but in every day of our lives. Men and women, boys and girls who bowed before the Lord and worshipped Him in life, who bowed the knee to Christ in life, so that we will be prepared to meet Him in death. At the same time, it's also worth taking careful note of the fact that it was in his old age that Jacob worshipped the Lord. That he was faithful in his walk with God. Even the Bible makes a sort of special note of this. That the righteous who, of the righteous who bear fruit not only in their youth, but in their advanced years. In Psalm 92, the psalmist says that they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green. It's the Bible's own recognition, I think, that not all Christians continue to bear fruit. in later in life, there is a principle of entropy in the Christian life, in things spiritual, a tendency to slow down, a tendency to slack up in the fight. Andrew Bonar often recollected that at the beginning of his ministry, an old friend and minister had said to him, Remember, it is a remark of old and experienced men, that very few men and very few ministers keep up to the end the edge that was on their spirit at the first. Jacob stands, therefore, for us as a reminder and a goad for every one of us and an encouragement to us that even a life marred by scheming and by spiritual shenanigans can still finish with worship. Can still finish with eyes fixed on Jesus. Not that I'm commending such a life to you, of course, nor certainly is the Bible. Jacob also finished his life with a boatload of regrets and reaping the bitter fruit that he had earlier sown by past failure in his life. How much better that we not only end, but begin and continue our lives, the Christian life from start all the way to finish, with obedience, the obedience that comes from faith. And one of the best ways to do that, one of the greatest engines, as the Puritans would say, for such a life is the recollection of the constant preparation for the end to which every one of us must eventually come. I mentioned Samuel Rutherford's correspondence to Lady Cardeness a few minutes ago. Now I finish with another example of this faithful ministry, even from his imprisonment, Rutherford's imprisonment in Aberdeen. From the days of his pastorate, Rutherford knew a particular, particularly choice Christian man. His name was John Kennedy time does not allow me to give you all the background to these events, but it seems that John Kennedy was one day so excited about the arrival of a faithful brother's ship to the coast of Scotland, a ship that they thought had been lost, that he got into a little boat and he set off to greet the great ship out in the water. But suddenly there came a terrible wind that whipped up the waves into a fury, driving his little craft helplessly along and then out of sight. Everyone was certain that John Kennedy had perished. Well, as it turned out, his boat had actually been driven by the larger ship and then out of sight and then grounded on a distant uh, part of the coast, Being a faithful pastor with a mind formed by the Scripture's own thoughts, he decided, Rutherford did, to use these providences to turn Kennedy's mind to his approaching death. So he wrote in a letter to him this, Death hath not bidden you farewell, but hath only left you for a short season. End your journey ere the night come upon you. Have all in readiness against the time that ye must sail through that black and impetuous Jordan. Then this, ye can die but once. And if ye mar or spill that business, Ye cannot come back to mend that piece of work again. And so I say to you, dear flock, you can die but once. You can die but once. It is your last good work. Do it right. Or should I say rightly? For you cannot do it again. Or better yet, make the apostles great desire and pursuit your own. That now, as always, Christ be honored in your body. Whether in life or in death. Amen.